Australia. Welcome to the Stand Up Australia podcast, Stand Up Sits Down With. Contrarian conversation, rebutting the mainstream narrative. Each week we discuss and deconstruct the most relevant news stories in Australia and around the world. But you may have missed during the past week and separate the BS and propaganda so you can make better decisions about which way you want to go politically and personally. So today on the show, former Australian PM savages rubbish or Castile with the US's worst deal in history. SVB and the banking crisis threatens to speed up the process of the CBDC nightmare. Radical plan to save Melbourne traffic. Is this a way to usher in the 15-minute city? Vaccines continue to destroy the Australian healthcare system and kill and injure record amounts of people here and across the ditch. Direct to Farmer Initiative starts in Southeast Queensland to help bypass the industrial food corporations. So our guest today is Michael Caluti. Michael is a father of two good men and two amazing women and a grandfather of one clever girl and a boy due any day now. I think it might be today, Michael. He's passionate about the need for us all to become involved in resisting the fascism that is apparent in all levels of government today. He ran in the 2019 election in Christian Porter's seat of Pierce as a protest against his refusal to take on the family law cartels and reform our family law system and in 2022 for the Australian feds in the federal election, an attempt to bring attention to the fascism and corporate capture of our public institutions. All right, Michael, uh, welcome. Uh, it's our first time chatting. Let's just add a little bit about yourself. And um, yeah, I'd like to learn a bit more about you. And I know our listeners would too. Oh, thanks, Mitch. Um, yeah, look, I'm uh, currently working on a project to build a gas plant up near Geraldton in Western Australia. Um, I've worked major construction over the last 20 years in most, mostly mining. And yeah, I'm passionate about putting back uh, the control of government back in the hands of people so that we can expose the kind of corporate agendas that are at work um, that have a vast influence over our lives. Um, and I guess that's what brings us to be having this chat today. Fantastic. Yeah, I know you've uh, been part of the Oz Feds, who are obviously very closely tied with Stand Up Australia. Um, and sounds like you're very close friends with Peter as well. So uh, it should be an amazing chat today. Yeah, looking forward to it. Lovely. So with that, let's get stuck into our first story. So you would have been following the collapse of the um, Silicon Valley Bank recently. Uh, the first story we've got here is actually about Credit Suisse. So I'm not going to go into exactly what happened with uh, Silicon Valley Bank because I think probably everybody's already heard that. This is one of the, it's actually the second biggest collapse of a bank in the history of the United States. And um, it's taken down a lot of the financial system. The first story we've got here is Credit Suisse shares soar after central bank offers lifeline. So Credit Suisse is the biggest bank in Switzerland. It's one of the biggest banks in Europe. And um, I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs of this article. So Credit Suisse shares surged Thursday after the Swiss Central Bank agreed to a loan, sorry, to loan the bank up to 50 billion francs, which is $54 billion, to bolster confidence in the country's second biggest lender following the collapse of two US banks. Sorry, I got that wrong. It's the second biggest lender, apparently. Credit Suisse announced the agreement before the Swiss stock market opened, sending shares as much as 33% before they settled around 17% gain. So to two francs, $2.15. Uh, 
That was a massive turnaround from the day earlier when news of that the biggest bank's shareholder would not inject more money to the Credit Suisse sent its shares tumbling 30%. That biggest bank was Saudi Arabia. So the plunge in price dragged down the other European banks and deepened the concerns about the international financial system. So yeah. this is this the Swiss National Bank actually bailed them out. Um, they've got over $500 billion worth of assets, which is, uh, I think, I believe, about four times as much as SVB. So um, have you followed this much? And what, what's your opinion so far? Yeah, look, I've, I've followed what's in the media and it's, uh, it is very scary. I mean, I know, I know a lot of people are um, buying silver and buying gold and predicting a, a complete collapse of the banking system. I, I follow a guy called Yanis Varoufakis. I don't know if you've heard of Yanis, but during the GFC, he was the Greek finance minister. There's quite a bit of footage of Yanis. He spent quite a bit of time in Australia. And if you want to understand what happened during the GFC, I recommend you catch up with what he's been doing over the last few years. He run, um, can't think of the name of his party in, in Greece at the moment. But anyway, to get to the point, he has predicted since the GFC that the banking system is going to collapse. And since the, what the GFC set it in motion, and this is going to keep happening. Whether this event is what brings it all down is hard to say and how long it's going to take. But the banking system as it exists is not sustainable. And it's just a case of kicking the can down the road and until it inevitably collapses on itself. What, what, what I believe brought down SVB, or at least what I've read, is a lot of these banks have been making big bets on, bond, on the bond market. And what, what that has meant as interest rates have risen is that those bets are all turning bad. And the SVB and Credit Suisse are obviously the two that it's gone bad the quickest. And yeah. now they need to be bailed out by you know, their, their country's insurance schemes to do that whether that's a contagion that feeds into other banks. And obviously that's, that's the strange thing that could happen. Yes. Scary oh, it is scary. I, I believe the, what has happened is SVB and not just them. I'm going to show you, um, I'm actually going to play you a clip shortly, which shows exactly where SVB is placed in the system, but they've made bets on bonds, which are only good when the interest rate is low. And as you know, inflation, which has been caused by the, you know, printing of money and um, mismanagement of the system over the last three years has made those bonds pretty much be worthless. So overnight, these banking systems seem to have gone down. Um, I'm going to actually, sorry, before that, I do have an article here from Moody's. So this is from, sorry, from CNBC. Says Moody's cuts outlook on US banking system to negative, citing rapidly deteriorating operating environment. So I'm not sure if you're that familiar with Moody's and the the um, the rating systems that there are. There's three major rating systems in the world for the international banks. But yeah, they Moody's, got in trouble during the GFC because they're all telling lies. Yeah, they're all telling lies. They're all they're all sort of saying yeah, everything's everything's a okay. So during the last three days, actually, sorry, five days ago, this is now. So it says, in a harsh blow to all an already reeling sector, Moody's Investors Services cut its view on the entire banking system to negative from stable. 
The firm, part of the three big rating services, said Monday it was making the move in light of the key bank failures that prompted regulators to step in Sunday with a dramatic rescue plan plan for depositors and other institutions impacted by the crisis. So it says, we've changed to negative from stable, our outlook on the US banking system to reflect the rapid deterioration in the operating environment following the deposit runs at Silicon Valley Bank, Silvergate Bank and Signature Bank. So Signature Bank is another one of those ones that's gone under. Um, but this is quite worrying because as you just said before, even during the GFC, Moody's was like rating these companies, what is it, A++? Um, and now they are rating as junk, the entire banking system. So what does that tell you about the health of the system at the moment? Well, it, it tells you if they're telling the truth that it's not, it's not healthy. And, you know, they're, they're essentially making bets on, on long-term things that if they get those bets wrong, um, yeah. then this is what's going to happen. And, and they're all exposed. Um, there was a tweet that Elon Musk put out this week about, you know, how rigidly a bank looks at an individual to see whether they're a good risk or not to give them a loan. And yet when it comes to themselves, they're making these $100 billion bets based on what? And, yeah. you know, and then when they go bad, it's like they just turn around to essentially the taxpayer to bail them out. And at some point, the taxpayer is not going to be able to. And those losses are going to have to be realised. Um, is is that now? Scary to think. Well, it is scary to think. And you know, eventually these these well, not eventually. I think right now they they realise that this is the case, so they just keep making crazier and crazier bets. I mean, why not? If you knew you weren't you weren't going to lose at roulette, would you just keep betting on black until you won? Well, yeah, that seems to be the thing. You know, like all and all of these same players were the same players that were at Lehman Brothers fourteen years ago. Um, I've got my maths right, 14 or 15 years ago when it all went pear-shaped there and uh, these people moved into positions in government advising um, the US government and in treasury positions all telling the government what to do and how to deal with it and here we are again. Yeah. Um, so I cannot imagine that this uh, ends well. No, no. And uh, just before I was discussing about um, the fact that um, the actual SVB bank is where it's placed with the other banks. Now, I'm going to play this little clip right now. And it's a little bit long, maybe a couple of minutes, but it just really shows you. And I'm going to, obviously, this is an audio podcast. So I'll, I will describe what we're seeing here, but just have a listen to this. Bunch of stuff came out just yesterday. You saw their stock at the beginning. The Dow was down 600 and it ended up with a couple hundred down. What's going on with the markets right now? Well, speaking of utopia, <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, overnight, uh, overnight, it's, it's very interesting. This can be summed up in one chart. Do you have the chart that came from Apollo? So, this very interesting chart that comes out assessing the balance sheet risk of the banks. Yeah, can you pop that up a little? And the arrow up there that's uh, toward the left side is pointing to Silicon Valley Bank. Everything to the right of Silicon Valley Bank is actually more risky and slightly worse oh, off than holy. the Silicon Valley Bank oh my God. balance sheet was.
I'm not sure if you can see that, Michael, at the moment, because we've got our screens turned off. Yeah, I can see it. I can see it. You can. So you wow. can see you can see where SVB is is ranked with wow. risk right at this point in time. So for the listeners, I don't think can, I wanted to see that. <laughs> for the listeners that can't see this, Silicon Valley Bank is one of the better rated banks in Australia. Sorry, in America. It's sitting at a score of 63, with the, the worst being at 80. And what would you say that's sitting in probably the at about the 25th percentile? Yeah, about there. Yeah. Yep. So you're potentially looking at 75% of the market going under. Yeah, it's scary. You know, like when and the GFC hit, it was, a, it was a couple of banks that went down and that contagion just spread to all of them. It, it doesn't take them all to go down. It only takes a couple. Oh, it does, as you saw in the in the first GFC. Um, we saw Lehman Brothers go down. Um, what was it? Bear, Bear Stern. Bear Stearns um, go down, and then it was chaos. Uh, for me, at that time, I didn't understand it too much. It didn't affect me too much. But, uh, you know, um, slowly I realized that what had happened afterwards and the fact that we had just kicked the can down the road. So I've been waiting for this uh, crash uh, for a long time. I'm not sure if it's coming now. Um, but you know, it well could be. So I think we need to buckle buckle up. Yeah, I, I hate to think of the ramifications. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm not. Um, look, I don't generally like to sort of push my agenda on the show, but I do have a theory of what's going on right now, and it it has to do with CBDCs. We've spoken okay. about this uh, the last. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I'm familiar with I'm familiar with this theory, <laughs> and I thought about writing something myself, but I think James Corbett said it the best in uh, a recent um, podcast he did with James Evan Pilato. It's called New World Next Week. It's something I listen to every week. I'll put this in the show uh-huh. notes for anybody who wants to listen. But I've just got a, a little um, clip here. It, Please bear with me. It does last for a little while, about three or four minutes, but I think it's um, it really describes what's going on in great detail. Um, so I guess the question is, how did this happen? What really happened to perci- pre- precipitate this? Because, uh, as I say, they reported on January 19th, $15 billion in unrealized losses, which is kind of a big deal um, for a bank. But actually, the next day, the stock price went up 16%. <laughs> Yay! Those, those great, uh, real hard-edged uh, stock analysts decided, hey, that sounds like a winner. Let's bet on that. Um, the, the bank passed its stress tests. Uh, it passed its FDIC examinations. It passed a financial audit by KPMG the week before it went under. Uh, it passed its state regulatory audits. So what, what happened? What really caused this bank run crisis? Oh, as it turns out, prominent venture capitalists advised their tech startups to withdraw money from Silicon Valley Bank, while mega institutions such as JP Morgan Chase & Co. sought to convince some SVB customers to move their funds. So you have this double whammy of people saying, hey, psh, get, get out of this bank, they're, they're going under, and JP Morgan and others going, hey, come over here. And as is now being reported, who are the, the immediate big beneficiaries of this? Well, get it from no less an authority than the Financial Times. Large US banks inundated with new depositors as smaller lenders face turmoil. Yep, all these regional banks are suddenly in stress and people are flocking to JP Morgan, uh, uh, Citigroup, the, the big name banks, um, absolute 
it's quite obvious who is Cui Bono? Well, obviously, the big banks, um, who apparently seem to have started the, the rumors that started this ball rolling. And that, as I say, should ring bells for 1907 for people who were paying attention to the century of enslavement and remember the big pa banking panic of 1907, the Knickerbocker Trust going under and all of that, the Trust Investment Bank and the... Uh, who caused that again? Oh, right, J.P. Morgan spreading rumors about his rivals so that he could then coordinate the bailout process to A, be seen as the savior of the banking system and B, consolidate all of his rivals and take control of them. Hey, ka-ching, ka-ching for J.P. Morgan in the Bank of 1907, the Panic of 1907 that led to the Federal Reserve. So will the Panic of 2023 lead to the CBDC of the future? Remains to be seen, but my eight, magic eight ball is all signs are pointing to yes on that one. Um, but it even gets even worse. I mean, okay, one aspect of this, certainly the J.P. Morgan chases and other major banking institutions that benefit from this, uh, not only benefit directly from new customers, but oh, by the way, Jamie Dimon, who was just this past week, as even Reuters is reporting, J.P. Morgan must hand over CEO Dimon's records in Jeffrey Epstein lawsuit. Oh, what were you doing with Epstein around 2015 to 2019? You hand over your records. That might have been a big story in the financial banking world if this SVB thing didn't start and then the contagion spread to Credit Suisse, as we're starting to see right now, right? Um, but it gets even worse because, as uh, Sovereign Research points out, if SB SVB is insolvent, so is everyone else. Uh, if SVB failed due to losses in its portfolio of government bonds, because that's where it was trying to park all of its excess cash deposits that it was flush with, uh, but oh my God, the Fed is raising rates. Who could have imagined that? Um, then pretty much every other institution is at risk too. Uh, Wells Fargo, for example, recently reported $50 billion. That's that's a lot larger than the $15 billion that SVB was reporting on January 19th in unrealized losses on its bond for portfolio. Um, the FDIC estimates unrealized losses among U.S. banks at roughly $650 billion, which is about the same size as the subprime losses in 2008. Uh, but here's the kicker. The FDIC run, runs a special fund called the Deposit Insurance Fund, or the DIF, to insure customer deposits at banks, including uh, across the U.S., including SBV, but the DIF's balance right now is only around $128 billion versus that $650 billion of unrealized losses that they're talking about right now. But here's where it gets really crazy. Where does the DIF invest that $128 billion? In U.S. government bonds. The same bonds that because they were tanking because of the rising interest rates caused the SVB crisis in the first place. So don't forget who is the bottom layer of this scam. It's the Fed and what it has been doing. This has been pointed out by a lot of different uh, writers recently. For example, uh, Activist Post has a post up, uh, Treasuries Risk-Free or Risk Unlimited. And Reason.com has How the Fed Broke Silicon Valley Bank. So don't forget who caused and engineered this crisis. Yes, the JP Morgans and the Jamie Dimons and others of the world, certainly. But the, the Fed is the bottom layer of this scam. And it is leading us into the CBDC nightmare. <gasps> but I'll stop and take a breath, James, while you... <clears throat> Okay, I know there's a lot of information to take in, but um, I had to play that because I just think it was such an excellent um, breakdown of what I believe is going on right now. And when he said that, I was just like, I have to share this in the show. It, that is so scary. Um, yeah, it, it just highlights how, if, if that is true, how individuals can have so much power and so much influence that they can affect 
basically everybody around the world because of their greed and something that they want to do and they just do it and we don't have any control over that yeah i mean you know whoever controls the financial system controls the world and it's it's banks like jp morgan who you know just coincidentally helped set up the fed back in back on jekyll island in the early 1900s who are now said to be have their their feet right in the fire uh doing it again so and i've got one more article here just to sort of finish this off but it says big banks agree to historic 30 billion dollars unsecured deposit injection in first republic bank one of the banks that's uh in at risk of going under uh-huh. the banks here who are injecting money into this is bank of america Citigroup, jp morgan chase wealth wells fargo so all the big banks are getting their hooks into these smaller banks what i believe is happening here is i believe that they're consolidating their power um, into the into the federal system uh, they control the fed and this will eventually lead to a cbdc where every single dollar you spend will be controlled by these few people or these few corporations. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally believable. Um, I, I'll, I'll share something that I've heard recently about central banks and what is the potential challenge to them. I mean, everyone's heard about Bitcoin and various digital currencies that are around the place. And there's a bit of a scramble to control that space. And obviously that's what your CBDC is all about. And But there's a story going the rounds that that's Elon Musk's end game through buying Twitter and his previous experience with PayPal and financial instruments, his connections to Peter Thiel and, and various other people who understand money far better than I do. Um, that's the end game for for Twitter is to be able to be a place that sits outside of the central banking cartel and allows people to be able to transact without using the central banking cartel. And that's maybe something that is happening behind the scenes that we don't know about. And the central banks are well aware of it and trying to implement their plan to continue to control us. They've been controlling us for a long time various ways but the cbdc is ultimate control total totally wraps us up into a system where every single dollar you earn and every single dollar you spend they know about and they can control it so yeah yeah i i have i'm familiar with that theory about elon musk and it is very believable i think he's been put at a pedestal by a lot of the freedom movement um that he oh, look it's hard to it's hard not to like what he's done with Twitter, but uh, I think it is a bit of a limited hangout. It pleases, it sort of, it gives a lot of people some stuff to sort of, um, to say yay about, you know? Yay, we've got, you know, they've talked about the the government and how they're corrupt and everybody knows they're corrupt. They've talked about stuff we knew a lot of the time uh, over the last three years or, you know, the last 10 years, but nothing that we really that's been ground shaking, to be honest with you. And he's been pretty open in the last few months about wanting to set up an everything app, just like they got in the in, the, in China. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think you're right on the money there. I'm not sure. Like, it's it's hard not to like what he does, but I get I get what you're saying. 
yeah, I guess we'll find out in time. Yeah, we certainly will. Let's hope, uh, let's hope we're wrong. <laughs> yeah. Oh, look, the only, the only way to really uh, prevent this stuff from happening, though, is to, to live what you say, isn't it? So start, start using cash. Start using cash yeah, more often. Well, while you can get it out of the bank anyway. Yeah. Say no to the system. Uh, buy gold. Uh, buy physical gold. Buy this physical silver. Um, I've got to start practicing what I preach um, when it comes to that. So, yeah, hopefully you've got some gold and silver, Michael. I don't, but funnily enough, I reached out to a friend of mine who's a prospector um, last week and he said he can hook me up. <laughs> so, <laughs> Fantastic. Just make sure you got your hands on it, not just uh just oh numbers. yeah, no, um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And make sure it's not from the Perth Mint either. No, it's uh, no, I've known this fella since high school and totally trustworthy. And uh, yeah. <laughs> oh good, good to know, good to know. All right, so we'll get on to our second story now. Um, this is a story from Melbourne in this is from news.com.au. So recipe for gridlock. Plan to slap Mel, uh, sorry, millions of Melburnians with tax to save CBD. So a leading public policy think tank has renewed calls to save Melbourne from an impending traffic nightmare that its plan comes at a cost to drivers. Peak uh-huh. hour traffic in Melbourne CBD could soon become a thing of the past as experts look at new ways to halt congestion, but it doesn't come. Sorry, this an ad's blocking my uh, my view here. I'm saying it doesn't come without a price. So in a bid to reduce drivers uh, banking up the city roads, Australian public policy think tank Grattan Institute have renewed calls for a congestion tax due to increased uh, road usage uh, post-pandemic. So under the proposal, motorists driving in and out of CBD will be charged up to $10 a day to enter and exit roads within the boundary. So I'm not going to go too far into this, but this is... um, part of the really busy area of Melbourne. I used to live there a couple of years ago. Um, But this has got a lot of people sort of up in arms with the 15-minute cities. And what do you think about this? Is this a, what's your, you know, initial thoughts about this? Is this some sort of, I know, you know, Melbourne is part of the initiative of the 15-minute city. So I think they call it the 20-minute city down there. But is this part of that? Well, look, I couldn't, couldn't say, but what you know, the whole concept of the fifteen-minute city. It's interesting. One of your, one of the other stories we're going to talk about later is um, an article that Rebecca Barnett has written, and but I spoke to Rebecca and we were discussing this, and the concept of a fifteen-minute city is probably not a bad one. It's but when it's forced on people, then it becomes a bad one. You know, if all of the things that you need to live your life are within 15 minutes of your home and all the infrastructure and all of the services that you require, that's great. But when you are forced to comply, what it's a, the best analogy I can make to it is that when you think about schooling today, like if you live in a good socioeconomic area, your public schools are going to be pretty good. But if you don't, then your public schools are going to be pretty average and your local hospital is going to be pretty average as well. And this is going to be a continuation on that theme. This whole 15-minute city thing, that's going to be the same. If you live in an affluent area, you're going to love your 15-minute city. But if you don't, then you're, going, you're not going to be able to access better quality services that exist 16 minutes from your home unless you're willing to pay just to get there. So, yeah, it's a, another scary concept. And it can, you can guarantee behind this, this road deal, didn't Melbourne sp- spend billions of dollars only a few years ago with some 
some road projects that they cancelled and they had to pay out the uh, contractors billions of dollars. Yeah, well, that was when um, uh, the Colonel Daniel Andrews first got into into power. He said, oh, I'm going to cancel this deal. We're going to get our money back, which we didn't. So, and it cost yeah. like $3 billion for but a road that never got built. You can guarantee some of the big contractors in this country made bank on those deals because this is ultimately what sits behind all of them. Uh, these major corporations, and here in Western Australia, you know, the, the amount of roadworks that have gone on in the last 10 years, our freeways are unbelievable. And our, and our road systems are unbelievable. They're brilliant. They're great. But we're paying for them. And what yeah. you have is these major corporations that build them who are in the ear of the government, and it's just a constant contracting game. And they, you know, they go to the minister or whatever, say, oh, look, we can do this and we can do that and isn't it wonderful and it's fantastic and the contracts get signed and these companies just make bank and they know how to contract they know how to contract because the government gets stitched up most of these ministers really have no idea what they're signing and before very long it's um, you know they become cost reimbursable projects cost plus projects where the taxpayers just on the hook for whatever yeah. they want to build yeah we pay for it and this is this yeah. is what this is what pisses me off michael about when people rubbish capitalism because I'm look I'm not going to say I'm a capitalist but I, I do like capitalism because I think it's uh, oh, you know, me too. it's it's me not too. a fair it's not a fair system but nothing you know there's no utopic system um existing in society at the moment it's the best we've got but this is you know they say the rich get richer um because you know you know the, the rich look after each other and but no this is this is more um sort of down the fascism path, isn't it? This is where Absolutely. government and private contractors get together to conspire and make money together, which is the definition yeah. of fascism. Yep. Yeah. So these these roads, I mean, I've got no problem with a, a private company saying, yeah, I'm going to build a road and I'm going to make it better for everyone and I'm going to charge for it. But what's happened in the past is the government says, we're going to do this and it's going to be free. I mean, that's why it's called a freeway, right? Because it's free. Mm -hmm. And then they go, oh, look, we're going to start charging for it now. And it happens every single time. Yeah, because I'm, it gets privatised and gets sold to an investment bank that's got to make a return on that investment. Everywhere you look, there's a shareholder or a CEO that is ramping it up. I mean, this started in the 80s, this privatisation of public assets. And, it, you know, all the promises that were made about that, it's just ridiculous. It's a complete lie. I mean, how can you have a corporation that owns a road and the public is paying for that road when it's already paid taxes and it pays fuel excises and all the rest of it. And then the government goes and sells that road to a private corporation that charges you to drive on it. It's yeah. just ludicrous. I, I don't know if you know, but West Australia, we have no toll roads. Oh, there are wow. no toll roads in Western Australia yet. Yet. You're doing and something I, right then, eh? I doubt any governments. Well, McGowan might try it because he's almost untouchable politically. But well, um, he's going to have to pay the Chinese back soon, isn't he, for the uh, gold he sold them? So, um, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah, you might have some might have some toll roads very shortly. Yeah, nine nine billion dollars he's going to have to come up with. <laughs> Look, I think um, going back to the story, I think in a vacuum, this idea is not such a bad one. Um, dri driving on these roads, I can honestly tell you that. The, the stretch of road they're talking about, that Hoddle Street area, is hell on earth. Uh, any any time past about seven thirty in the morning and after work, you just 
if you're there at that time, you should get your head checked. So I think in theory, in theory and in a vacuum, that really works. But as you were saying earlier, we did have a plan to build a road earlier, which was scrapped by the government that is proposing this law um, right now. And that would have probably made a whole lot of things better. And this is the exact area that that was supposed to deal with as well. So to tell you the truth, I, I don't think this is a 15 minute cities um, conspiracy theory, but I think it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a bad idea and it's a lot too late. Yeah, you raised the point there. We were discussing the point there of, of a, of a cancelled contract. Why was a contract cancelled? You know, and, and who made the money out of that? Obviously, you know, taxpayers' money went to those corporations because a politician who may not have made the decision got into power and he owed a favour to another company or another contract that was supposedly a deal done over dinner somewhere to get him into power. And that deal gets scrapped. The taxpayer pays their contract out. And then he, as you're saying, years later, I mean, I don't know Melbourne that well, you're saying if that had gone ahead, it would have relieved the problem that you're now having to pay to fix today. Yeah, I mean, it would have relieved a lot of it. I'm not, not saying it would have solved the problem, but it would have taken a lot. That, that, that whole stretch of road, that sort of, it really does connect that um, southeastern suburbs to the north. Uh-huh. So uh, that whole ring road, which would have gone around that, um, really would have solved a lot of that issue. And that would have been built by now too. Yeah. But now we see this and it's going to be another congestion tax and tax and tax and tax and tax. It's, it seems to be the only sort of thing they've got in their kit bag is just to add more taxes to deal with issues. Well, maybe if these corporations were paying a reasonable amount of tax, there wouldn't be so many taxes on people. Yeah. I mean, it's not as if we've got like record inflation and, uh, you know, food costs and energy costs and mortgage costs and all sorts of stuff at the moment, is it? You know, so we can afford another tax, can't we? Well, I don't know how many people can. <laughs> <laughs> not many, not many. No, I think we're going to see a lot more of that, a lot more of the sort of, uh, you know, the downstream effects of that in the next six months. So, yeah, I don't like to look forward to this, but it is going to, going to be interesting to see. Yeah. So I'm going to go to our actual first story, which can, I completely missed for some reason. Um, so this is the former Australian PM who savages the rubbish AUKUS deal with the US as the worst deal in history. Now, I know that you have a little bit to say about this, but I'm just going to read the first few paragraphs from the um, article I pulled from Zero Hedge. Uh-huh. So it um, says, the former Australian Prime Minister Paul Keating, who was among the country's most well-known and influential, inf- sorry, influential political thinkers, has shocked the establishment by coming out with a blistering attack on Australia's AUKUS nuclear-powered submarine deal. With the United States and the United Kingdom, he blasted it as the worst international decision by a Labor government since the conscription order of World War One, which is quite a quite a statement. Oh yeah, uh, he said in a written statement on the occasion of addressing the National Press Club on Wednesday that the submarine deal is fundamentally about the U.S. strategic hegemony in Asia, and that Australia has now unwisely hitched its wagon to Washington. Keating wrote in the rare critique that China has committed in the eyes of the United States the great sin of internationalism and what is that sin to develop an economy as big as the United States? Yeah. He's, he's bang on the money and it's, it was a stunning speech and a really interesting watch. And I recommend anybody to watch it. Keating in 79 is 
possibly not as sharp as he used to be, you know, when he's speaking off the cuff, but, you know, he's bang on the money with this. Yet he's still younger than Joe Biden. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, he's definitely sharper than Joe Biden. He's definitely sharper. I'm not sure if he's younger. I think Joe's only 78, but yeah. 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 But uh, no, this this deal, you know, as, as you've read out there, it, it commits Australians for at least the next 30 and probably 50 years. We're committed to an American idea that to contain China's economic development and its place in the world. And as Keating said, this deal has absolutely nothing to do with defending Australia. China doesn't threaten Australia. It has no plans to threaten Australia. It has no interest in threatening Australia. And and not only that, these submarines that are being bought, if we ever see them, in the next 15 or 20 years, then they don't actually serve our purpose as the Collins class that we currently have. And he went into a great deal of detail about that. We'll get nine submarines. They will, and the way he understands it and explains it because he knows, is that that means that you have 30% of your fleet operational at any one time where you want them. So that's three nuclear-powered submarines, which are twice the size of the Collins-class submarines, which means they're not suitable for Australian waters. They are designed and going to be used to sit near China as part of a part of a uh, defence strategy. But for the same money, we could have bought 45 Collins-class boats, which would have given us 15 operational boats at any one time. And they are sized and they are designed to defend Australia, whereas these nuclear boats are not. This deal is completely and entirely about propping up American defence contractors and British defence contractors. It's $378 billion of Australian taxpayers' money that will go directly into the military-industrial complexes of those two countries and not ultimately give us defence capability. That's what Keating is talking about, and he's absolutely spot on. When Morrison first announced this deal, and he's an idiot, as is Christopher Pine, who's also behind this deal, they floated this deal as being about Australia having building the capacity to build these boats in Australia. That'll never happen. We will never have the capability to build them here. It was always about American and British industry who sit behind getting this deal signed off to transfer $378 billion of Australian taxpayers' money into their economies. Not about our economy at all. And that's how Morrison first sold it. Now the truth is coming out, as was obvious to anybody that understands how this works, that they were never going to be built here. We were ultimately just going to buy them from, from the US and the UK. And what Keating also mentioned, which I first I'd heard of it, and it's not out in the media, unsurprisingly, that the French have also come back to us and offered to build it, build or offered us their nuclear power submarines at a much better price, at a fixed price, and by a fixed date. And their boats um, are much more advanced than the Americans or the British. So yeah, it's well worth getting having a look at that interview if the subject interests you, because you know Keating, love him or hate him, he's uh, a formidable intellect and he knows what he's talking about. And for him just pop his head up again, uh, above the parapet on this subject, we should all be taking an interest and getting it 
ended before, you know, essentially what we become under this deal is embedded in the American military industrial complex for at least 50 years. And there's no way out of it once we go down that route. We basically become the 51st state of the United States, really, don't we? We're just another, well, yeah. it's another yeah. Hawaii, another place yeah. to put your put your weapons. And, um, yeah. and look, look, part of this for me sort of screams out as a, the protection racket. It's it's the you know the mafia coming to us and saying, "Hey, we're going to attack China soon. So you want us to protect you? You're going to have to buy the stuff off us." The same thing they're doing with um, with NATO, with a lot of Europe. Um, with Japan, uh, they do the same thing there. South Korea, always stoking up fear so they can sell weapons. Yeah, that's right. It's all, yeah, you're exactly right. And, and if you heard Peter Dutton, that mutton headed character, spruiking it over the last couple of years, you know, potato head Dutton, yeah, potato head, you know, puffing out his chest. And, and I mean, you're reading it in the media constantly now over the last 18 months or so, this ramping up this fear about an inevitable war with China which is just nonsense. It's absolute nonsense to justify these decisions to spend taxpayers' money, tell everybody you should be scared and we're trying to protect you. It's, you're right, it's a complete racket. And it's American defence contractors embedded in our government and every government around the world just ramping it up, as you say, to keep the fear quotient high and so that people think it's reasonable to just continue to build military all the time. Yeah, definitely. And you, you, you're seeing it. I mean, we missed a story on our last show um, about the, 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 you know, the sort of news that's, or the news, should I say, in, in air quotes, that the, the virus came from a lab in Wuhan. Um, yeah, funnily enough, now when tensions are high with China, they start to go, oh, it came from China. They're trying to kill us all. Um well, there's a lot. There's a lot that's pointing to the the actual source of the virus is out of the US. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that, and that's a. I think that's a very likely cause. But it, even if it did come from China, though, what the point I'm trying to say is that it's very convenient right now to say that it came from China. Yeah. When they're trying to drum up some, you yeah. know, some sanctions, some war. Um, I mean, TikTok, for instance. Uh, you know, all the TikTok spying on us. Like, if you own a spy phone, you know, everybody's spying on you. Apple spying you, Google spying you, the NSA. How quickly we forgot about Edward Snowden's uh, revelations, you know, six, seven years ago about the NSA spying on us. Um, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, many of us have sort of pay attention to all of this, but uh, most of us are well aware that we know very, very little, um, you know, and all we see is the smoke from the fire. You know, and I think, if you're familiar with Eisenhower's speech in the 50s, warning yeah. us about the military-industrial complex, there's, there was a second component to that speech and what he was trying to say. And, and I think, um, was it Eric or Brett Weinstein? I always get those two confused. was talking about this recently. I mean, they prefer to be called Weinstein, apparently. <laughs> you're right, you're right. Sorry, yeah, Weinstein. And it was about the information technology aspect of that. And we're seeing that now in all of these social media platforms that are being weaponized and used to create propaganda and create division amongst everybody so that people are taking their eye off what the real problems are. And, you know, Pete, you can go to any 
group of people who consider themselves to be awake and you'll find yourself unable to agree on things that are completely irrelevant and not be able to unite on getting together to get enough votes together to get rid of the kind of people in our government that make these decisions and who kowtow to the US and to the US military industrial complex. Because ultimately that's that's how it happens. Yeah. You know, there's 227 people or whatever that sit in our parliament. They make the laws. And that's the beauty of our system that we haven't quite used to our advantage yet. The corporations of the world are very, very quickly or maybe not so quickly but over time have very effectively worked out if they control those or half of them effectively half of those people that's why they donate to all the various parties if they control half of those people they control the legislation and they can influence those people in, in all the different ways that people can be influenced to so get the laws that they want get the decisions that they want sign the contracts that they want and here we are wondering well, why is this happening yeah yeah do you think we're playing too fair i mean first thing that springs to mind for me when you say that is should the people organize a, a lobby party to go into canberra or your state government even your local government and and start playing dirty start offering these politicians some cash and and um <laughs> you know get things well, done what, what do you mean offering some cash we pay them <laughs> yeah obviously not enough you know, the, the, the fundamental question is really why are the corporations allowed to lobby you know, you can go back, I think it's, uh, I can't remember the cases, but these were the cases that were decided in the United States. And prior to these cases being decided, corporations did not have the right to make representations to their politicians. Corporations were and are meant to be regulated by politicians on behalf of the people. That's the only function that should exist between government and corporations. But the cases, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head, they gave corporations in the US the same, they gave them the legal status of, of a person. And the same kind of idea operates in Australian politics that, that corporations can take politicians out to dinner, they can donate to their campaign funds, they can do all kinds of things. And, and then they have the ear of the politicians. So the, what you're just talking about there is the way it is actually supposed to work. You know, we're supposed to have the ear of our politicians and if corporations want to make submissions to government, well, it can be a public submission and you can tell us what the issue is and how you think it should be resolved. And, but ultimately, the job of the corporation is to go out and make something, sell it to people and make, make a buck, make a profit and totally, totally for capitalism, but not yeah. when capitalism decides it wants to be government. And that's what fascism is. And that's what we live under today, where the people want to see it or they don't want to see it or recognise it. It is just a fact. Yeah. And we're and all I, suffering through it. We do. And I, I think there's a you know something to say about morals here. If you've got a good moral base as a human being, you don't do these sorts of things. But when you operate under the law and the law alone, these things aren't illegal to do. You can, you can do this. You can lobby the government. You can, you can play unfair. You can, tr you can get your own way. The way you want and a lot of the time it's not illegal so this is why they do it they say oh i'm operating under the law it's not moral but it's the law isn't it so who the makes law, the law yeah well yeah 
mean, you lobby hard, lobby hard enough, the law will change, won't it? Exactly, and that's the point. Once you get control of the, the of the means of making the law, well, then you'll make the laws that you want. And you know, our constitution does not give um, corporations any power at all. They are to be regulated by government, and the government is to be elected by people. The Commonwealth is us, you and me. We are the Commonwealth. We are the people that put in place a government who is meant to regulate corporations on our behalf. Everywhere you see a corporation doing the wrong thing, as you say, and often that can be legal, then there's a reason. The law, the corporate law, puts in place a financial imperative that all corporations have to be concerned about is their, is their return on investment. And that's yes. the only thing that they should care about. There's no imperative for them to care about the environment. There's no imperative for, you know, if they sell food, that food doesn't have to necessarily be good for you. They can sell cigarettes. They can sell dodgy medical devices and products. And the only recourse that you have as an individual is to sue them in a civil court. Yeah, and all of this, as you correctly pointed out, is legal because that's the system that they want to operate to their advantage. It's not the way it's meant to be at all. And we need to wake people up here, everywhere around the world to stand up, get political, start to understand this and start to ask your politicians or express a vision of what you want society to look like. And if your politician starts talking to you about stuff that doesn't interest you, so why are we talking about this? I want good schools for my kids. I want to be able to walk into a supermarket and know that what I pick up off that shelf is, is food. It's not overproduced garbage that's not healthy for me. And so, so many other things. Jesus, it was a laundry list of things that corporations do and get away with simply because, as you say, it's legal. It's okay. Yeah, it it leaves me feeling a little bit helpless, to be honest, Michael. I just I feel like, how do we change the system? Like, what's to say we? Well, we the thing get is, a- once, once you understand that changing the system merely means, I say merely in inverted commas or quotes merely means replacing 127 people, then it's a different equation. And we saw, this is something Peter and I spoke about at length, we saw the Teals at the last election, Love More Hate run a very, very effective campaign. And we have to do the same. We have to mobilise people to get off off their butts and get political stuff, understand how the political system really works and get behind those people that they would rather see in government. We're coming up to be nearly two years out of the next federal election and just by um, coincidence in WA, our next state election is only a couple of months apart from that. And if we start now and we start to really speak and set an agenda, and I think that's the key, we have to set an agenda. We have to set a handful of topics that we want to be what everybody is casting their vote upon. So, you know, the kind of things like 
mandatory vaccinations of, of experimental products in the population or the fact that we don't have a Bill of Rights and any number of things that matter to the average person never get mentioned at an election. We'll get boats over, uh, people overboard on boats or we're stopping the boats and, and a, lo a lot of other cynical rubbish that the political parties come up between themselves as to be a one, one topic upon which the election will be decided and they will smash that down people's throats and be the only thing that gets talked about. Yeah, We have to turn that around. We live in an age where we now have social media. We now have means to communicate that sit well outside of the old, the old ways. We can mobilise. We can get out and speak, and we're going to be doing it. Uh, I guess that's what Peter's talking about with his community connect, of getting people involved and getting people political. It was something I noticed, and I used to ask it every time we spoke was to ask people, you know, how many people in this room today would consider themselves politically motivated or politically aware? And it was always around about 10%. And so it was really gratifying to know that 90% of the people that were turning up to live with people talk about politics had not previously taken an interest. Yeah. <coughs> so that's gratifying. And, and it told me that that is our pathway to changing this country. And I believe it. I believe it can be done. I totally believe it can be done. And but we have and it's not it's not that it's impossible. We just need to do it. We need to yeah. get out there talking, engage with people, have them understand the political system, have them understand, you know, so many people say, oh I'm not interested in politics, but they fail to connect that um, lack of concern about who they are voting for with their taxation, with the quality of the schools that their kids get to go to, with the yeah. roads they get to drive on, with, with so many other decisions that get made, they don't put the two and two together, and they need to, they need to understand it. Yeah, definitely. I think um, it's easy to talk about stuff, isn't it? But it's harder to go out there and do stuff. And I think um, with the, the advent of social media and the interconnectedness of the internet, you people feel like they're doing something, but they're not really doing enough. And we'd really need to get out there and start talking to people on the street, having uncomfortable conversations with people, you know, um, meeting new people. Um, you know, personally, I've, I've been in Brisbane for the last two years and I've had to meet many people. I had my 40th birthday party the other night and I had like about 35 people here that I've met over the last little while. We've talked politics with, we've, we've shared ideas and we've uh, come to a, a common you know, common ground talking about uh, the things that concern us and a lot of people are doing something about it. And that's what we all need to do, like you said. And if we do that, we can make a change. Because inversely, you've seen at the last Victorian election, it's something like 20% of people didn't vote. And they're the ones that yeah. have been turned off voting. And that they're, they're probably the ones that are more likely to be like, oh, well, I used to believe in the system, now I don't. But you've got the ones now that on our side who have never believed in the system and now see a, a chance to change it, who can make a, a really big change. Totally, totally. That's disheartening when you see people that don't even turn up to vote. Yeah, it is. I mean, I'm, I'm a big believer in, um, you know, not having a, a mandatory voting system because you have to earn my vote. I'm not going to vote, just donkey vote. But um, at the same time... Um, I believe that too, because if you just are forced to vote, you're probably going to vote, vote for the majors because that's what you know. So um, I think uh, if we 
take that away, we'll probably see more people voting for your independence because they'll have to think about it more. Yeah, if, if we give them a reason. If, yeah, If definitely. they believe that, that you know, our success is, is actually achievable. Um, and that's why I think the Teals are, are, you know, I don't necessarily agree with what they stand for, but I think they're a lesson in um, how to run a very effective campaign. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. They did a good job. Let's just uh, copy what they do from the next one. <laughs> yeah, well, sure. We need about $9 million. Right? <laughs> we can get there. We can get there. Um, look, before we go into our next story, I just want to talk about our next uh, our next event we've got going on at Stand Up Australia. So we've got a, a live webinar coming up, and you, I'm not sure if anybody caught the Community Connect launch the other night with Peter Harris. It was an amazing chat. Peter's uh, such a, a linguist. He's great with words. He, he knows how to get Australia to a point we were just talking about. So I'm hoping everybody saw that. Hopefully we'll have a, a replay up on the website shortly where people can look at that. But if you get a chance to look at that, fantastic. That was the opening to what's happening in the 30th of March, having a roundtable discussion with some community leaders from around Australia. And it's going to be an amazing event. Um, I'm personally going to be on there. Um, and there's going to be details coming soon, but please keep track of the Stand Up Australia website, our Instagram accounts. If you're not on the mailing list, please get on the mailing list. You will not miss another event if you're on the mailing list. And uh, right now as well, it's time to ask if you can please support us. We will be doing a lot of stuff in the next year and we do need money to do it. So please, if you have some cash to give away, doesn't need to be much. If you've got a buck, just please uh, pass it over. Anything helps. Um, any other information I will put at the end of this podcast in the notes, um, click on the website, sign up for the next event and we'll see you there. So uh, the next story we've got, we've only got two stories. We're going to go for the next two pretty quickly because we are getting to time. So we have spoken about this in the past quite a lot, almost to death. Um, New Zealand records the biggest increase in registered deaths in 100 years. So this is including the Spanish flu, World War I, World War II, uh, all the big events. So it says New Zealand's recorded the largest increase in number of registered deaths since the 1918 influenza pandemic. New data from and, uh, sorry, Stats NZ shows the births and deaths figures for the year ending December 2022 show there were 38,574 deaths in 2022, 10% more than 2021. So that's a quite a, um, a interesting figure to to sort of point out there too, because they're comparing to 2021, which is also high. Uh, and I think we both know why they were high, Michael, but uh, 10% on 2022, I don't know what it was on 2020 um, or 2021, but that is just enormous, isn't it? Oh, it's horrific. Now, as you say, we, we you know, those of us who have been following this know very well why. And it's, it's just alarming that there's still this reluctance to... Tell the truth. You know, you can you conduct an experiment on people, you know, and, and it hasn't worked. And you're still trying to tell people that it's because they contracted COVID. And it's very, very, it's a very, very easy experiment to work out. You know, you just gotta look at the number of us that chose and stood firm on not having those vaccinations or those injections. 
Um, and how many of us are suffering from long COVID, this other rubbish term that they've dreamed up? How many of us are dying suddenly? How many of us have got all these health impacts from having caught the virus? I don't know the answer to that, but nobody's actually asking that question. And it's a pretty easy thing to ask and it's a pretty easy thing to find out if we actually had an independent scientific establishment in this country, they would be running that experiment right away, right away to know whether or not those injections are the underlying cause of all this excess death. Very easy experiment to do. Definitely. Whether or not it gets looked at by the, the mainstream is another thing. Um, I know the Surgeon General of Florida recently came out and did a, a, a study on excess deaths and also heart attacks in young people and found it was like something like an 87% increase um, from the people who didn't get the vaccine. Um, but that was rubbish by the CDC. Um, they said there's obviously going to be more adverse reactions because more vaccines were given, um, which was, yeah, look, a real straw man considering he didn't actually, he actually brought that up in his argument saying that there was always going to be more vaccine adverse reactions because four times as many vaccines were given, but the amount of adverse reactions that actually happened was 1600%. So we're talking, yeah, we're, we're talking enormous, enormous increases, enormous increases. And as you said, um, they're blaming it on COVID, which is a stupid, um, it's, a, it's a really dumb argument considering they say that the vaccine is going to protect you from serious adverse um, you know, but problems from the actual virus itself. So if 93% of the Australian public has been vaccinated against COVID, then we shouldn't have these problems. But yeah, yeah but going on to, um, you know, getting to Australia now. Um, and so there's a guy, Nick Go Goyeran, is that? Yeah, he's a West Australian uh, member of parliament. So he recently emailed his followers uh, about the vaccine adverse reactions that have happened in Western Australia. This is an official document too, which will be in the show notes. It shows that in 2018, there were 293 reports of vaccine adverse reactions. In 2019, there were 247. 2020, there was 270. And in 2021, there were 10,726. Wow. So we all know what happened in 2021. Uh, the yeah. government is apparently admitting there is a, you know, these are adverse reactions from the from the um, COVID vaccine. Obviously, yeah. saying that they're very rare um, and they're probably not that bad, and they recover. Blah blah blah. You know, you've heard it all before. Vaccines are safe and effective. Yada yada yada. So I'm not sure if you heard much about this being in Western Australia, but um, yeah, the, the graphs yeah, yeah, yeah. the graphs are pretty stunning. I'll put them on in the show notes, but um yeah it's it's it looks like just a, a metropolis uh, in the distance from you know very flat farmland you know what i mean so what have you what have you heard so far from the mcgowan government anything incriminating I've, them we've kind of gotten used to the mcgowan government you know he's a little bit like uh i'm trying to think you know he just doesn't care he doesn't have to care he will just keep he'll just stay on message and he'll, he doesn't have to care. He has an overwhelming majority in parliament um, and he's untouchable politically. And he's 
and he behaves that way. He behaves as a dictator and, an, and a bit of an emperor. And uh, I, quite honestly, I don't know if he's actually even responded to questions. That's his latest tactic. He just dismisses them. So, as I say, he's untouchable in a, in a political sense here at the moment, I think. So he's not going to break, break out an Aboriginal elder to speak pidgin English to the public again to explain what's going on? Or? Oh, who knows? No. Who knows? It's, it's an interesting time to live here. I think most people, even people that have voted for him, sort of a little bit over him. But as I say, we're two years away from an election. And, and the reality is there's no opposition here. There's, Nick Goran is one of the few from our former Liberal Party. And the Liberal Party is done. They're dead. They are finished yeah. in Western Australia. And possibly nationally. I believe they're probably done nationally, yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what comes out of the rubble is really up to us in two years. If there's going to be a challenge to McGowan and his, uh, I, I can't even think of the word, you know, the way he just completely dismisses any criticism, you know, that oh, you brought up the Perth Mint thing earlier on, and he was known as the minister for everything. I can't remember how many portfolios he held. But this is what goes on. It, it's yeah. there in black and white. This is the problem that your decisions have created and there's not even an apology, not yeah. even an acknowledgement. Well, we might have made a mistake there, and this is the reason we did it. It's just complete dismissal of any criticism. Yeah, he's like the other Labor dictators in Australia. You know, you got Dictator Dan, and you got Queen Palaszczuk up here. They just don't. They don't like answering questions. They don't have to. Well, that's right. They don't have to, and that's what they've learned. You know, and, and over years we've probably seen that <coughs> that development in our politicians. They 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 figured out that they're untouchable. Yeah. You know, you know, from the position that McGowan sits in, one of the things that I like to take into task when I was speaking publicly was he hosts regular dinners at one of Perth's fancy restaurants up in Kings Park, so it's got an un, un, uninterrupted view of the skyline. Of the city skyline, and he charges five thousand five hundred dollars a head to go and sit down and have dinner with him. And <clears throat> these are regularly reported in newspapers. But you know who goes to these dinners? What are they talking about? Yeah. And how is this? How is this acceptable? This is the degree to which these people have lost touch with who they are and what they are meant to be doing. There's a strong speculation in Western Australia about how our mandates came to be is because when these dinners are on, these dinners are generally attended by representatives of the big mining houses who they wanted these mandates in place because they believed at the time that, you know, and go down various rabbit holes here, but they believed at the time that these vaccines, when they came out, were going to solve the problem, that they were going to work, they were going to stop people catching COVID, they were going to stop people dying. Uh, they were going to do all these magical things. And so to keep the iron ore flowing, that was their solution, that everybody must be vaccinated because ultimately the only thing any of these people care about is keeping their businesses running. And so ultimately the only thing the government cares about because these are the people that fund their campaigns and 
look after them and buy them five and a half thousand dollar dinners. This is whose bidding they do. And I strongly believe that Mark McGowan followed the not the advice of the chief health officer, but the advice of the CEOs of the big mining houses. We want our workforce vaccinated because that means our businesses can keep running. And here we are. Yeah, yeah, I I I think that too. Eh? I think um look, I, I think um most of the politicians in Australia were followed the company line when it came to they just you know they, they agree with what they hear from their health experts and they say vaccines are safe and effective. And when big companies come to them and say, look, we need to do this, they just say, okay, no worries, you know, because they're they're out of the loop. They don't they don't do their own research, they don't understand. What uh, they just take advice, yeah. They take advice, they take advice, and they take money, yeah. Maybe not directly, but it eventually comes to them. Oh, no, they take it directly here. <laughs> no, it, it's staggering, and honestly, that some of the things are reported, it, it is reached the level now where they do it openly and unashamedly. There was a story recently about a bunch of them getting um, AFL box tickets from a particular developer. And it was exposed in the media and, and the response, I'm not sure if it was McGowan who gave that response or it was some other, one of his other ministers was like, well, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing at all wrong with this. This is a developer that's looking for us to make a decision in their favour and they bought us fancy tickets to go and watch the football. And it, this is fine. Yeah, wow. Yeah, yeah. It just uh, it screams of a story I heard the other day about you know, Donald Trump, I think it was RFK Jr. was saying the, the telling the story about he got him in to, to do a vaccine commission once he got into parliament and became president and all ready to rock and roll. And then Pfizer said, oh, we're going to give you a million dollars to hold your inauguration. Yeah. And then after that, you saw Alex Azar and um, Scott Gottlieb from yeah. Pfizer get prominent positions in his government and the whole thing was shut down. Then yeah. you have the pandemic, uh, you have the, the contracts for Pfizer, and you have, um, oh, God, what's what was his program called to get the, the vaccines out? Oh, warp speed. Warp speed. Um, yeah, money talks, and unfortunately, it doesn't talk for us. Yeah, and, you know, that's it's not irretrievable yet. Um, but it's, it, you know, the day is coming where we will not be able to influence our political system. Yeah, no doubt you've heard the you've heard the expression. If if voting changed anything, they wouldn't let us do it. Yeah, um, yeah. but it still can, still can. Um, you know, confident of that. It's it's really a question of getting in front of enough people, and mobilising those people to get passionate. And I was talking to someone the other day about influence, and people think you need a vast majority. You don't. You only need about ten percent of people to believe in your message, and and you're there. Because from there it spreads. And the example I'll give you is, is kind of the woke movement that we're experiencing and a lot of what surrounds that. This is a very small number of people in, in a large population around the world, but we, they seem to be setting agenda everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a reasonable example of it. Anyway, you want to get on something else? Right? No, the only the only last thing I've got about this story is uh, the story from Rebecca Barnett, mm -hmm. um, which I know that you want to talk about. So I thought I'd just bring it up. Um, 
So it says here, until the end of 2022, New South Wales Health reported the vaccination status by dose of all hospitalizations, ICU admissions and deaths with COVID. The purpose of this exercise was to monitor the effectiveness of COVID vaccines in the real world, says New South Wales Health. So it says here now that vaccination status of cases admitted to hospital, admitted to, sorry, admitted to ICU and those who die will no longer be reported. These data were included from 2021 when vaccines were first rolled out to monitor trends and the relationship between vaccination outcomes. So what's happened here now is the, the data now is showing that, well, not now, it's always showed that the more vaccinated you get, the more chance you're going to end up in hospital with COVID. Yeah. And it's, it's pretty staggering. You look at the, the data here, you've got um, no dose. You've got rates per million is 0.6. Uh, one dose is 5.2. Two doses is four. For some reason, that's lower than one. Um, and three doses, 6.3. And if you have four plus doses, you're 12.4 per million. Yeah. So, so I mean, this is uh, this is pretty pretty crazy. And they're no longer they're no longer reporting this. I mean, there's only yeah. one reason why, why they wouldn't report it, really, isn't there? Yeah, because it's becoming obvious. <laughs> And, you know, this is what Yedin spoke about. This is what Malone spoke about. You know, the ne negative efficacy of these vaccines and the fact that they destroy human immune systems for many people. Um, it's scary. You know, I, I don't know. I actually booked in. I, I, I lost my career. I lost my job over refusing to be vaccinated. I actually booked in three times. And I'm so glad I never went through with it. You know, oh, wow. A, yeah. I mean, I was teetering on the, on taking the chance. I knew it was, I knew it was a dodgy vaccine. I knew it wasn't anything. I mean, but I, I, prior to this event, you know, I'd never questioned getting a vaccine. I'd never questioned anything. Well, within reason, anything my doctor told me was a good idea. Um, but this, this event really opened my eyes. And I'm so grateful to the people that I met. Uh, during that time and the fact that I didn't do it because I don't know anybody now who who doesn't regret or, or regrets not doing it. No, nobody regrets not getting it. Sorry, yeah. Nobody regrets not getting the vaccine. Nobody regrets not doing it. No. Um, there's a lot of people who regret doing it. And I would have been one of them. I definitely would have regretted it. Um, another form of Russian roulette really yeah well that's um crazy to hear really because I you know obviously just speaking to you now I don't I don't know you um well at all but um just I can tell that you have had your finger on the pulse so it must have got pretty you know you must have felt pretty desperate to the point where you actually yeah like a lot of people who, who weren't as fortunate as me I mean for me I've had this conversation with a number of people. For me, it was purely about money. I had a good career. You know, I was making great money in a, in a good, good position. And that would have continued had I accepted this vaccination. And in the end, I didn't work for about eight months. I had to sell assets to get by. But I was able to. Yeah. A lot of people were not in that situation. A lot of people don't have anything more than maybe a few weeks um, funds at their disposal and they were forced to do something they didn't want to do yeah but yeah go uh, next it's a hell of a lot of people are that hey 
yeah. I hear about it all the time. I mean, when they bring out, they say, we talk about COVID and did you get yeah. the vaccine? I said, no. They're like, oh, really? Oh, I regret it so much getting it. And I'm like, yeah. it's okay. Like, just don't get any more. Yeah. You did what you had to do. Just don't get any more. Mm. You know, we can't, you know, we can't hold these people um, accountable for what's oh, happened God, because Absolutely. no, you have to have compassion for every, everybody that's that's gone there. Like all, all of my kids went and did it. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, they're not getting any more. <laughs> <laughs> Most people I know did it. I don't think any, any less of them. If they no, if they abuse me for not getting it, then I do. But um, if they got it, then that's their choice, and that, that they should be you know left alone for that. Yeah. yeah. Look, I want to want to finish off with a, a positive story, and we won't talk too much about this because we are quite over time. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's been a great chat so far, and that's why we have been over time. So the, um, the last story is Noosa Farmers Market goes digital with click and collect at home and sorry, and home delivery service. So I have seen a bit of negative publicity about this in the, the freedom movement. So I'm not sure why, because I, I can only see good in this. Um, something I've thought yeah, about setting up myself for a while. Um, so it says organizers of the sprawling Noosa, Noosa Farmers Markets are hoping to take on the major supermarkets with the launch of an online click and collect and home delivery service. Thousands of people flock to the iconic markets on Queensland's Sunshine Coast each Sunday to soak up the atmosphere and snap up homegrown food and homemade wares. So what they're going to be doing is they're going to be going online and people can order online and um, either pick it up from the market or they can pay $18 and get it delivered to their house. Now, this is fantastic because I'm surprised it's taken so long for a market to get together and do this because, you know, not only is the produce better, it's cheaper um it's just more nutritious it's fresh sometimes it's been picked that day you're not dealing with massive corporations uh, you're 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 cutting off the the supply and if you if you were to add some sort of you know a third party payment solution say bitcoin or some mm-hmm. other privacy coin then you could completely bypass the system with this this sort of thing yeah. there's there's no food shortages when you're when you're buying directly from the farmer absolutely this is the future so and like you i'm surprised that anybody has anything negative to say about it yeah, I found it pretty pretty weird. I was like, but you know, you see it. It's just at the moment everybody's so distrustful of everything going on that they they see the the worst and everything. Uh, there's just yeah. there's so much conspiracy theories out there that have come true. Then you you kind of think everything's a conspiracy theory, don't you? Yeah, you do. And I know you said over time, but that, I think that's another one of our greatest challenges is to recognise all of this information that is being fed to us is is for a reason, is to confuse, is to disorient it, is to disunite us from standing up against these corporations. And that's what these people are doing and they should be committed for it and supported. Definitely, definitely. Let's hope to see this in every state. Um, and if it's not happening and you're listening to this and you have a chance to sort of actually get together with, you know, some local growers and maybe organise this yourself, please do. Uh, we'll be talking about this on the Q and A uh, with the community group leaders around Australia on the thirtieth of March. So tune into that, um, and hopefully get some ideas. We can set up some of the stuff and bypass the system, or at least at least help change the system. So, yeah, Michael, it's been great great chatting to you tonight. Uh, is there anything else you want to sort of add before we finish up? One thing, and this this last question is sort of stimulated. You know, one thing that people have to understand in when corporations control your government. Every time you spend a dollar, you're casting a vote. And, and yep. things like this, where you're spending a dollar that doesn't go to Woolworths or Coles shareholders, 
you're making a statement and you should take advantage of that every opportunity you can. Yep. Yep. Definitely. Definitely. Vote with, vote with your dollars. It's vote the, with your uh, dollars. Yep. the easiest way to do it. That's the, yep. you know, it's the least intrusive way as well. It's the, it's not hard. Just do no, it. It's not. it's not make a conscious choice where your money goes. Yep. All right. Well, thank you again for joining us tonight and, um, yeah, hope to have another chat with you soon if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. And say, say hello to Peter for me. Great talking to you. Yeah, I will do. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> <laughs>